Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you're here with us. And if you're a, a guest with us, uh, thanks very much for, uh, for being here. And again, thank you to our ushers for trying to get as many people as we can in here and be properly spaced. And uh, thank you for your patience and working with us uh, to allow that to happen. And if you're watching uh, online, glad you've joined us online. And for those of you down at F3, um, stay awake and um, listen well, because I can't look at you, um, so behave yourselves down there. Um, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 this morning. We're studying through the book of Romans, and uh, sometimes I feel like we're just skimming the top at times, but um, there's such richness and, and depth of truth here. Uh, but instead of getting too deep this morning, I want to even fly this plane a little higher. I want to start this morning with something like a 35,000-foot level uh, perspective and, and overview before we actually get into Romans chapter 7. So here's what we're going to do. Um, our journey as believers, we all start out, as we've seen in our study of the book of Romans, in Adam Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all humanity because we all sinned in Adam. Um, Adam started it all off, and we begin our life. We're born in this realm, a spiritual realm, in Adam. That is spiritually dead. That's what it means to be in Adam. No spiritual life. We're born sinners. But when we trust Christ as our personal Savior, someone, uh, or we read the Bible, or, or someone shares Jesus with us, and at some point, we are brought over into the in Christ realm. We are transferred out of that in Adam spiritual death into Christ, and we are identified with Jesus Christ, which means, and we've seen this in Romans chapter 5 and in chapter 6, that whatever is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Jesus died, well, we're, we're hidden with Christ, and it's as if we died. And he was buried, and well, we were buried with Jesus, and he rose from the dead. And so our new identity is in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. But as we've seen the last couple of weeks, we also make a choice. During our, our Christian journey, we can choose to either be a slave of God follow him, serve him, or we can be a slave to sin. We still have that propensity, that vulnerability to sin, which can trip us up and entangle us and get us to focus off God and on ourselves. And we can live that life that doesn't please God. We make a choice. We're in Christ. We are eternally saved. We're heaven-bound, but we make that choice. At the end of our Christian journey here on earth, as believers in Jesus Christ, we'll stand and give an account. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. It's a, it's a time of uh, assessing. It's a time of judgment. It's, it's where believers stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we give an account for how we have lived our life, how we have served the Lord whether we've lived a life of, of fruitfulness for him or a life of, of, uh, of service of ourselves. And there's a judgment. 
And that will determine our rewards in heaven. That will determine how we're going to spend eternity in terms of serving the King of Kings throughout all eternity. It's not going to determine whether we get to heaven or not. That's already been secured for us. It's how we're going to live in heaven and serve him. And we have the joy and the absolute confidence that we will spend eternity and experience eternal life forever and ever and ever simply because of what Christ did. He placed us out of Adam into Christ. Now the journey of the unbeliever, the non-Christian, well, yes, we all start out in Adam again. We all start out in that realm of spiritual darkness, everybody born in this world. But for the person who doesn't trust Christ as their Savior, they remain in that place of that, that essence of that nature of, of sin and of death throughout their entire existence here on earth. And the end result is that they also will stand one day in judgment. And it's called the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. And they too will be judged according to their works. Not to have a station in heaven, but the degrees of punishment for all eternity. They too will have an eternity. It'll be eternal death. Two journeys, two roads. Now, if there's a predominant theme that runs throughout the opening chapters of, uh, of Romans, it's this thing of moving from in Adam to in Christ by God's grace. And in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that area of are we going to choose to be a slave to God or choose to be a slave to sin, that's the focus of Romans 6, 7, and 8. How we live in our relationship with God on this earth. And Paul is giving us instructions on how to do that. Now, this theme of God's grace is predominant. Because to get out of that in Adam sphere, spiritual death, into the in Christ sphere, is not by works that we do, right? For by grace we are saved through faith, and not of ourselves. It's not of works. It's a gift that we get from God. And over and over again, that's emphasized in, in, in Romans, for instance. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes through faith. Or he says in chapter 3, verse 18, we maintain that a man is justified, declared right before God by faith, apart from any works of the law. Or in chapter 4, to one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to righteousness. It's purely a gift received by faith. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified, declared right before a holy God, justified by faith, we have, we are in a state of peace with God. All world religions, other than Christianity, focus on man's attempt to reach God, man's works, Every human religion has some element of human endeavor to please some divine. Christianity is just the opposite. We're incapable of earning a spot in heaven. We're incapable of reaching God. And so what we could not do for ourselves, God did. And he comes to us. God so loved the world, he gave to us his only begotten son. 
And Jesus did all the work, and he paid for our sins on the cross. He rose again triumphant over sin and, and, and death. And he offers the free gift of eternal life to everyone who puts their faith in Christ. And only Christianity has that as the essence of its, of its foundational belief. God reaches out to us, and he offers us. He does all the work. And he offers us a free gift. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. No one is capable of coming to the Father except through Jesus Christ and what he did. So if we know Jesus as our personal Savior, this truth of salvation by grace through faith is very, very dear to us. We know that that's the only way that we are accepted before God is by what Jesus Christ has done. Our only hope of eternal life is because of the free gift that God has given us. And so we receive it by faith. However, while we as Christians believe that this grace given to us that saves us eternally is, is true, it's, it's real, it's God's means of of allowing us into his presence. So oftentimes, while we're living the Christian life, as Christians, we think that we can kind of do it on our own. That by our own self-efforts, we can live out the Christian life. We know our justification is a free gift received by faith. We are declared right before God. But our sanctification, how we're living the Christian life, is um, oftentimes viewed that we have to do a lot of work to make that happen. And so what happens is that if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're heaven-bound, but the question is, are you enjoying the trip? Paul wrote to the Galatian church. This is a common problem in the New Testament. He told the Galatian church, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your own human endeavors? You started out and you received the free gift by faith, but now are you trying to be perfected and live it out in your own human attempts, in your own human endeavors. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is trying to teach us that we don't have to live that way. A choice that we make every day. Now again, before we get to our study of Romans 7, I'm still flying up here at 35,000 feet, and I want to share a little bit with some Old Testament background. We are created to have fellowship and communion and intimacy with God. He, create, uh, he created us in his own image. And he created us in his own image so that we can enjoy him, that we can fellowship with him, that we can serve him, that we can love him. He invites us into that relationship. But God has said, in order for you to fulfill that calling for which you've been created, in order for you to have intimacy and fellowship with me, in order for you to experience real life in me, 
you have to be as holy as I am as holy, and you have to be as perfect as I am perfect. And so he, he writes to the people of God in the Old Testament, like Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. God says, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that standard of holiness, God says, uh, let me give it, let, let me unpack for you what that looks like. Who are you, God? All right, you're calling us to be as holy as you're holy in order to have fellowship with you. What does it look like? And so God gave them a picture of what holiness looks like. It's called the Ten Commandments, the law. And those Ten Commandments were unpacked into 613 other commandments. You want to know what holiness looks like? Here they are. Here's the list, the standard of God. This is who I am, holy. And God told his people, now you have to obey that. You have to obey this law of mine or you will suffer the gravest of consequences. Moses, the leader of the people, shortly before he died, gave this exhortation in Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. It's a no-brainer, right? I'm giving you life or death, blessings or curse. Choose life. Obey my commandments and live. But the history of Israel is a history of people who have totally were unable to obey that law. They could not do it. Does it ever bother you to think that God gave commandments and requirements knowing that the people were incapable of fulfilling them? Here's my standard. Obey it and live. Otherwise, there will be grave consequences. And time and time again, the history of Israel is that they failed. Generation after generation, they failed. Century after century of time. The history of Israel reads like a who's who's of failures, spiritually speaking. And then one day, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. And he offers words of hope. He said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, my covenant which they broke. But this is the covenant which I will make. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Days are coming. And God is saying, I'm going to take that standard, that commandment of God, and instead of on tablets of stone external to you, I'm going to take it and write it on your heart. 
I'm going to guarantee, I'm going to write it in your heart, I'm going to guarantee your success. Because for centuries, you've been nothing but spiritual failures. I'm going to make a new covenant, a new agreement with you, a new contract. And I will forgive your sins. I will not remember your sins anymore. Wonderful hope, wonderful blessings. And again, the decades and the centuries rolled on. When would this new covenant begin? Well, in the upper room, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it's recorded that that night Jesus took the cup after he had eaten, and he said, this cup is poured out for you, and this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. I don't know what it would have been like for those disciples to have heard those words, but I would think that every good Jewish person would hear those words and their ears would perk up. Did I just hear the words, the new covenant? We've been waiting, waiting for this for centuries. I'm beginning to wonder if Jeremiah didn't hear the Lord right. And now Jesus says, new covenant in my blood. Something radical took place that next day when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, and he shed his blood. Uh, I know I asked you to go to Romans 7, but can I just have you turn to Hebrews chapter 8 for just a moment? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews unpacks this a little bit more when he says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. If it would have worked under the old covenant, the law of Moses, well, there'd be no need for Jeremiah to be prophesying about a new covenant. But verse 8, finding fault with that first, he says, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, and I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he goes on and quotes Jeremiah 31, and he concludes in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now jump over to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, sanctify, for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, if it worked, if that Old Testament law system worked, well, there wouldn't have been a need for anything else. But verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant 
so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. A new covenant, a new way that God is now working with people. And why did Jesus bring this about? Because he perfectly in his life fulfilled the dictates, the commands of God. He was the perfect law keeper. He became fully man and is man's representative before a holy God while still being holy God. He lived out his life in pristine perfection. Be holy as I am holy. And only one man did it. It was Jesus Christ. And he walked this earth in perfect holiness and righteousness. And then he said, I'll be their substitute. And he became the sacrificial lamb. He crawled up on the cross and he shed his blood. And he enacted the new covenant. And it's all based on God's grace and mercy. So that God now invites people to approach him the holy God, not on the basis of how good we are, because we'll never be good enough, but now we have a substitute. We've got the perfect law keeper in our place who approached God and was, was accepted by the holy God, and that God was satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. And so he invites us to place our faith in him and what is true now of Jesus becomes true of us. God looked at his son and his perfections and he raised him from the dead three days later. And he looks at us and he doesn't see our imperfections. Because when we put our trust in Christ and receive what he has done for us, our life is wrapped up and hidden in Jesus. And he doesn't see us and our sin. He sees the perfections of Jesus and he declares us to be right, holy, sanctified. We are justified, declared right. Under the old system, the law, it was do this so that you will live. And the people were unable to do it. But there's a new system. It's called grace. And it's on the basis of faith, believing in Jesus and what he has done, resting in him. And it's based on what Christ did. Not you do it, but Christ did it. And we are alive in Christ. And so walk by faith in him. Now, as I said last week, I think it was, God is still very much interested in how we live out our life in this world. He still requires us to live holy lives in our day-to-day -day existence. God is immutable. He doesn't change. It's the same God as in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy. In fact, 1 Peter reiterates that command. The difference now, as opposed to the Old Testament times, is that under grace, we've already been accepted by God. He has already declared us right. So we don't have to live holy lives to earn His favor We've already received his favor because of Jesus. And so we have an entirely different motivation to live out every day our holiness. We can serve him, love him. We can obey his commands, not because we have to earn something from him. And we have an entirely different power source under grace. 
This is what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is talking about. We have a new identity. We're different people. And according to chapter 8 of Romans, we have been given the presence of his Holy Spirit, a new power source under this grace system, so that he empowers us to fulfill that holy life in our day-to-day existence. He not only demands it of us, he says, now get out of the way and I will actually live through you this holy life. Remember the little statement a couple of weeks ago I mentioned from John Bunyan or whoever it was that gave it. Some say it was John Bunyan, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. It's all grace. Now again, being under grace does not mean there are no standards of righteousness. God's righteous standard is still intact from the Old Testament. And what was that? Well, it's summed up in one word. Love. All the commands of God can be summed up in one word. Love, love God, and love others. Paul said that in Galatians chapter 5. The whole law, Jesus said it. The whole law is summarized in that one word, love. And God still says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me, love me. I want intimate relationship with you. Pursue me, love me, and love others. Let it flow from, let my love flow out from you to love others. So that whatever we do in word or deed, we do it for his glory. we're, We're bringing glory and honor to him through our life of love lived out. So being under grace, we can live that way with a new motivation. I don't have to do that to earn something from God. And under grace, We have a new power source. Lord Jesus, live that life through me. Empower me to obey you. Now, we're ready for Romans 7. So turn to me to Romans chapter 7. And very quickly, this is how Paul summarizes everything I've kind of just said. Do you not know, Romans chapter 7 verse 1, do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. There's the principle stated. We're under the law for as long as we live. And then he gives an illustration of marriage. For sake of illustration, he says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. And so then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. There's the illustration. Verse 4, here's the application. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God. For while we were in the flesh, that is, Prior to our relationship with Jesus, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work on the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, we've been released from the law. We've been delivered from that old system. Having died to that by which we were bound, we were handcuffed to that old system. But we've died to it. We've been released from it. So that, the conclusion, 
We serve now in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. The new covenant way of dealing with it. Now verse 4 and verse 6 are so key. It really tells us about what the Christian life is all about. Again, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. And that's a passive voice. We didn't do it. It wasn't some action of ours. We have been made. It was done to us. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God took over and we were separated from that old system. We have been made to die to the law so that we can be joined. We have a new spouse, a marriage made in heaven, joined with Jesus. And why? The ultimate purpose? So that we bear fruit. We bear fruit for God. Verse 6, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Why? Last part of verse 6, so that we serve in newness of spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Living under law always brings defeat and death. But if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, something totally new has happened. And why? so that we bear fruit for God. What's the fruit for God? It's summed up in one word, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it looks like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness. Love can actually be manifested through us, in us and through us. We can bear fruit for God. We can, as it says in verse 6, serve him, fulfill our calling for which we have been created by trusting in Jesus and every day appropriating the grace system, appropriating his strength to live out what God has called us to do. Serve him, love him, glorify his name. All right, so we say, you know, okay. Um, it sounds like a lot of theological pious platitudes. I mean, let's be honest. You look at your week and you find out that your bank account is overdrawn. Justification, sanctification, under law, under grace, who gives a rip? My bank account's overdrawn. Or, got to go to the dentist this week and get a root canal. Justification, sanctification, under law, under grace, who, who gives a flying rip? Get that doctor's report, the cancer's returned. Who cares about being married to the law or married to Jesus? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. If you listen to the news, it's horrible. In the election year, can you imagine what's going to happen in the next few weeks? Justification, sanctification, under law, under grace, oh, I'm just trying to survive. Here's why it matters. God has made us for a relationship with him. 
and in him is life. He sets before us life and death, joy and sorrow, fullness or emptiness, meaning or meaninglessness. And he says you're only going to find the joy and the purpose and the meaning. You're only going to love and truly experience life in a relationship with me. And the only way you can do that and experience it is because of what my son did. He enacted the new covenant in his blood. And when you have a personal relationship with him and you live every day in the strength and the, the grace that he supplies, you can rise above and actually in the midst of all the, the mess and circumstances of life, you can experience life in me. And God is saying, that's what I want for every one of you. Of, of you, all my creation. Only God can bring about that meaning and hope and joy in this painful existence. You know, folks, you know, you, you know what those people rioting in the streets that we can become so disgusted with? And it is disgusting. But you know what they want? I think they want to find meaning and purpose going about it in a satanic way. Because that's what Satan does. He deceives. We can make a better world. There's got to be a better world. And so they, they go and engage in riotous, satanic behavior. Thinking in that they'll find life. It's a lie. And Christians do it every day as well. I can live this Christian life the way I want to. Well, I, I'm just going to try harder to love that spouse. I'm going to just work this out. Yes, I know life is bad, but I can make it. I can find life if I just work a little harder at it, this thing called the Christian life. And God is saying, no, no. That's the law system. The grace system is... I'll empower you. Appropriate what I've given you already. You're a new creation in Christ. God set forth one requirement to enter a personal relationship with him, and it was faith and faith alone. And God has one requirement for us to bear fruit for him and serve him and experience the abundance of life. It's faith and faith alone in his enabling strength, in his grace. What does it look like? It means that when you lose your job and you're forced to sell your house and figure out what is going on next in life, instead of grabbing it with worry and struggle, you say, Lord God, I don't know how to figure this thing out, but I'm going to give it to you. And in the midst of this pain that I'm going through, I want to serve you. I want to bear fruit for you because that's what I've been created to do. And so we get out of the way and all of a sudden his Holy Spirit takes over. We trust him, and then we go out and do the next right thing. We go out and find another job and trust him in the process. It means that when the doctor's report is anything but wonderful and your cozy little healthy world comes crashing in around you, you say, Lord, I, got, I, I, I don't know what to do in this situation. It's apparent that my future is pretty uncertain, but 
But Lord God, I'm going to serve you through this. I'm going to bear fruit for you in the midst of this. And I can't do that, Lord. So empower me. It's your, it's your fruit that needs to be shown up in peace and patience. And, and I want to serve you, God. So you, you take that next step of faith. You do the next right thing. You obey your doctors. You change your eating habits. You live more healthily. And you trust him. And you let him take over. It means that when your unbelieving spouse has broken your heart for the umpteenth time and you're thinking, I can't do another day in this home. And yet you say, Lord, I want to serve you. I've been created in this world to honor you, to bear fruit for you, to reflect your glory. So, Father, what I can't do, I'm going to trust you to do through me. And you take the next step of faith and you do the next right thing, trust in God to love that unlovely person. It means that when you've come to the end of yourself and you're wondering, is there any hope for tomorrow? You take that deep breath and you say, but I'm here to serve you. And I'm not under the law system. I'll never figure this thing out called life, but I'm going to entrust it to you. Lord, by your grace, Help me to do the next right thing, to serve you. And God will always say, my strength is perfected in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And it's all made possible because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And he enacted the new covenant by which we are plugged into the life of Jesus, a new identity with him. Do you know him this morning? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because there is no hope of maneuvering this wretched, sin-sick world on your own. Just look at the news and politics. Do you know him? Have you put your trust in Christ? He died for your sins. He rose again and he says, I'll give you a free gift of eternal life. You can experience it now and forever. But put your trust in me. And you transfer your trust onto Jesus and that new life begins for you in that moment. Do you know him? Are you experiencing him, dear Christian? Are we living moment by moment in the experience of life? I've set before you today life and death and even Christians can live a life that the stench of death. And he says, no, 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 no. Stop trying, start trusting me. Experience me. Come to know me. And so we spend our time with him and we talk with him and we commune with him and we experience him and we bear fruit. We serve him. Stop trying. Start trusting. Because we're not under the law. There was a marriage made in heaven and our life is united with Jesus. And all Paul is trying to say in Romans 6, 7, 8 is please, Christian, understand who you are in Christ to live out the glorious calling that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your assistance. We need your, the power of your Holy Spirit moment by moment. And as we continue through these studies of Romans 6, 7, and 8, help us to understand, Father, what it means to follow you wholeheartedly 
to serve you and bear fruit for your glory and to do it not because we have to to earn your favor, but because we get to because we have already found your favor. And help us to do it not by our own striving and our own efforts, but, Father, to entrust our life to you and see you work out in us the truth of these passages, serving you, bearing fruit for you. For your glory, Father, I pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.